So this bolt of lightning shot across the universe and inspired me with the idea that we have to do a podcast. And that's what I wanted to tell you. We should do a podcast. Okay, bye. Built-in microwave semicolon. Uh, episode number four. <laughs> Hundred. And yeah, I don't know. Four. Um, if you started counting four episodes ago. <laughs> right. So, uh, welcome to our podcast. If you have not uh, listened, if this is the first podcast you're listening to, um, I'm Ned, and this is Meg. Uh, Hello. Uh, we are. We'd love to hear from you. We have an email address for the fans and anybody who has any opinions about anything. Um, and you can email Dana, our CEO and co-founder or founder, founder. Um, She's totally the founder. Yeah, it's her we, fault. We didn't found shit. No. We were just in the background when it happened. Right. Um, so email Dana, D-A-N-A at fcbm.io um, and let us know what you think or what ideas you have or whatever. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Um, this yeah. is ostensibly a podcast about art and design. But really, it's about the reunification of uh, Europe Germany. after Germany. Yes. Anyway. Um, but funny. But You know, but funny. Um, <laughs> That's a line we totally stole from the movie Orange County. Yes. Which is a great movie. Yes. And everybody's like, a movie called Orange County that was produced by MTV in the late 90s? How could that possibly be entertaining? But and it it's, is. It's, it's amazing. It's really good. Yes. It has some really great <laughs> characters. Um, yeah. So uh, what are we talking about today? Art and design? Well... Yeah, we can talk about, um, let's see, I had a couple of topics that I wanted to talk about. Let me find them really quick. I earmarked them. Okay. Um. So, uh, if again, if this is your first time listening, like our usual process is that uh, Meg and I are currently bi-coastal. You're on the north coast on the Great Lakes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'm on the west coast in San Diego. Um and uh, yeah, so usually our process is we kind of talk together all the fucking time. Um, and then occasionally we have uh, ideas that we we work up into a podcast. And yes. um, this one is, I think we got ahead of ourselves and hit record before we were totally prepared. <laughs> but thankfully we've this got... This happens. It happens. Sometimes these turn out to be our best They really do. Yeah. Episodes. Sometimes they really do. Yeah. <laughs> So we've so, got, yeah. Go ahead. Um, there's, topics. Yeah, we we kind of come up with all kinds of topics. Like oftentimes, I'll be reading something. I read all day long, all kinds of things, and so I'll toss something into an ongoing chat message that we have. Like, oh, we should talk about this sometime. Mm -hmm. <coughs> the one I'm looking at right now, I get a lot of inspirations from this organization called Design Boom, and they post about technology and um, architecture and art and design. And they had a story just recently um, about something called Transpod. Uh-huh. And it looks like a monorail. Yeah. But they call it a flux jet. And I, I texted you the link to the article that I'm looking at, if you want to pull it open. Oh, yes. Um, <clears throat> the fully electric Transpod flux jet <laughs> can travel at a groundbreaking speed of 1,000 kilometers per hour. Holy shit. Yeah, so this is really like uh, 
fascinating and so that's um, like 620 miles an hour yeah that's real fucking fast considering it's like land-based uh-huh so um it's the it's a canadian startup uh-huh. so who knows if this will ever go anywhere uh-huh. <clears throat> but they've apparently reached uh some kind of a milestone in their process here um they use fossil fuel free energy systems it's an electric vehicle and it's designed to be a hybrid between a plane and a train. Mm-hmm. Um, it has contactless power transmission. So I assume this is something similar to like a maglev train. Right. Um, <clears throat> because the photos that they have here, which I'm sure are all just like renderings. They're not yeah, yeah, they don't actually, actually have it. Yeah. photos of the thing in action. Um, the renderings basically give it a look like a monorail. So this is, um, I mean, what I'm looking at, uh, so yeah, this is vacuum tube transport again. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. no, probably not. Not excited about that. Let's tell people why. Um, I well, so at first, like I thought, oh, uh huh, yeah. I mean, it, like having a vacuum environment is for sure what you need in order to reach these kind of speeds because you can reduce the terrestrially. Like, terrestrially, yes. Right. Yeah. Um, however, uh, the issue of like. The issue of maintaining such a large vacuum, like such a large space that is a vacuum on Yeah, with Earth. negative air pressure. Yeah, with negative. I mean, and you really, I, I don't think it has to be a perfect vacuum, but it has to get pretty low for it to like be effective. Like it can't yeah. be, it can't be like upper atmosphere. Like, yes, you get efficiencies when you get like lower air pressure um, for sure. But like my understanding and I don't, I'm not prepared I, I'm not prepared to like go into all the math of it. The but, science of it, yeah. But as I understand it, like it needs to be a pretty good vacuum. Like it needs to be pretty low pressure, much lower than like what you'd find anywhere in our, even our upper atmosphere. Um, and it needs to be even. You can't just suddenly hit a pocket of like right. higher air pressure or something like that. It has to be consistent throughout and like right. almost well, negligent. And the biggest problem, of course, is that you want Negligible. to... Negligible, Like in order for a transport to be effective you have to open and close doors constantly to let people on and off. Right. You can't. So how do you maintain a vacuum then? You, you don't like, it's very right. expensive. It's very expensive. We don't currently have anybody who's been able to do it. There's other vacuum technologies that also are struggling. Like there's that spin launch company um, that basically mm. creates, it's like their idea is to like swing a rocket around a bunch on an arm and then let go of it. Like a, like a sling, <clears throat> yeah. like launching a stone. And yeah. so in order to do that, to reach the speeds they need in order to get it closer to like orbital velocity, they need to orbital velocity being, you know, or escape velocity, like velocity fast enough to leave the atmosphere and then not get pulled back down to Earth. Right. In the, yeah. You have to sup- you have to escape the gravity well of Earth. Yeah. Which is like and so so fucking difficult at this point. You need fossil fuels and lots of them to do it. Yeah. And so my understanding is in order to reach those speeds, they have to create a vacuum in the spin chamber where they have this long arm holding onto a rocket that spins around. Um, mm mm-hmm. And of course, that's also like, and that's a better situation than this because in that instance, they can take time to suck down to the vacuum. They don't have to do it immediately. They need to get Mm -hmm. down to the vacuum pressure that they want. Then they need to 
Um, and then they can kind of maintain it until the last minute when they release the the rocket out of the chamber and then the vacuum seal can be broken that one sure. time. And so yeah. that's even better than this situation where um, you have to, you know, first of all, they're kind of like the FlexJet is advertising itself as like being contactless, right? So that's great yes. for low, you know, low friction environment. But at some point, it's going to have to have the the internal part of the, you know, this this rocket in a tube or whatever, this vehicle in a tube has to have some place where it interfaces to let out um, mm -hmm. people and let people in. And so it has to create some kind of like gasketing, you know, structure where it meets up. And so yeah. you have to do this a lot. And so, um, and also like anytime the vacuum breaks, the whole system has to slow down. Like it's, you're not going to be like, mm -hmm. oh, the vacuum broke over here or whatever. It's like, you know, the whole loop that you're on, it has to slow down. It's yeah, and they're talking about this running between Calgary and Edmonton. So how far is that? I mean, like, and so I guess my question too would be like, are you only leaving uh, portals open at either end? Like, is the only place that you can get on and off at Calgary or at or mm -hmm. Edmonton at the other end? Um, I mean, possible. So it's interesting to me, like they're talking about, so they say in, in this thing that it's going to, you know, they're going to make a hundred and $140,000 jobs and add 19 billion to the reasons region's GDP. And it's going to cost 18 billion to build it in just infrastructure. And like, what's interesting to me is this is a completely like privatized. There's this one startup that's in charge of everything and it doesn't rely on any existing infrastructure at all. Right. Like we're just going to build it from scratch and we're the only people doing it. And like, they don't say anything about how much it's supposed to be going to cost, but it does say allegedly it'll be 44% less than a plane ticket to travel the same corridor and would help reduce CO2 emissions, yada, yada, yada. But <clears throat> yeah, I, the other thing that's interesting so to me is like... it's about 180 miles between the two cities or 300, okay, kilo that 300 was, kilometers. Yeah. 300 kilometers. All right. So, well, that's really fucking interesting. It travels 1,000 kilometers an hour, but you're only going to make it go a third of that... Why do you need it to go that fast if it's... Well, I imagine, I imagine this may be one of those things where it's like they're hoping to build it and run it. I mean, if you run it at 300 kilometers an hour instead of... What are they advertising? 1,000 kilometers an a hour? 1,000. So you're advertising it's going to take you 20 minutes to go the distance at a thousand kilometers an hour. Yeah, which would be fantastic. But also like I, I don't. Who needs to go from Calgary to Edmonton in 20 minutes? Uh, I don't know. I mean, well, I think that's one of those things where it's like um, being able to create that time, like shorten that time so much creates those those cities become like next door neighbors now. Right. Like. Yeah. You're no longer, you know, if you're able to move goods and people between two cities like that, um, this is, you know, people are going to be interested in it. Um, but I, I think that. Um, There's one more thing I want to talk about before we beat this completely yes. to death, which is that this hypothetical project. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, if, if something goes wrong, which something always does right um like what's the rescue plan for dealing with some kind of a problem at a thousand kilometers an hour in a sealed vacuum sealed tube with no ports to access which ensures it's 
integrity is a vacuum. Like, <clears throat> what if you crash at the halfway point between Alberta and Calgary for some reason? Yeah. So, um, I or mean, Edmonton I think I think Calgary, these are yeah. like, you know, very valid. Um, like these are very valid points i think that the more immediate like the fact that you break down and you're stuck in the tube somewhere is obviously a problem but um that's presuming that you survive the breakdown yeah at a thousand kilometers an hour that's the that's like the real issue i see is it's like um yeah, me too. Like, if anything goes wrong, it's going to be catastrophic because of the speed involved. Yeah. Or like, there's the potential for catastrophe with speeds like that, with terrestrial speeds like that. I mean, yeah. Anyway, so I, I was just thinking about that the last few days. I was thinking about this high-speed train. I've been on a bullet train in Europe, the ones that go like 250 miles an hour or whatever, and yeah. they're fast as hell, and you sort of enter an altered state when you like walk through them. Like when you move through the train and the train is moving through space, it feels very strange. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, <clears throat> it is awesome. Yeah, yeah but also, cool. yes. <laughs> uh, and also, I think that's what's really frustrating about a lot of these things where it's like... Um, you know the elon musk like hyperloop or whatever and all these things mm -hmm. where it's like like okay fine but why don't you just build some high-speed trains that we have now and no work and are well tested mm -hmm. and like pretty effective is my understanding like you know they're yeah. you know why i went from like, i went from london to paris under the channel in like no time yeah i read that um <laughs> Elon Musk's Hyperloop bullshit was just to kind of derail the the fucking uh, Caltrain, the Caltrain in the first place. I have also read this that it was merely an act of like cock blocking sabotage and not a serious endeavor in the first place. Right. It's like what yeah. the? F I mean, which kind of makes sense if you have a car company where you're like, no, I want people to stop. I want people to drive more. Right. You know. But it it's very confusing. Yeah. Like, I mean, the, it, yeah, if you're like some evil genius who thinks that like by sabotaging a train, you're going to force people into your particular vehicles, maybe. But like, well, I don't know. I mean, now that California is barring the sale of uh, gasoline engines by mm -hmm. 2036, I think, or something like yeah. that, you know, yeah. You know, not a bad, not a bad plan, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, maybe not a bad position to be in. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, I mean, there's lots, there's lots of good things about the fact that like, you know, combustion engines are, are getting, you know, shit on and, and taken away. Right. But, um, but also like, you know, fucking every time capitalism butts up against anything, it's ruined. Yes. <laughs> that, maybe that should be the title of our podcast. Anytime capitalism butts up against anything, it's ruined. Yes. Like uh, my partner and I were talking about this and her kids who are in soccer and she uh -huh. sent me this article, which I didn't get a chance to finish yet, but um, I was skimming through it and it's like basically the argument that um, money in, in child sports is ruining kids having a good time. Oh. Because like – you know, she was complaining about how she's like, I want my kids to keep playing soccer, but the older they get, the more hyper competitive the teams become and the less mm. fun it is for them because if they don't make a team, they just don't get to play that year. Oh, God. 
And really, and she's like, yeah, like she's like, I can't find like, you know, she's trying to find these like places for them to play soccer. And it's like by the time they reach high school, their ability to play like an organized team sport in soccer is completely dependent on how serious they take it and how much they're willing to like be like a hyper competitive participant as opposed Mm -hmm. to like someone who shows up every day and enjoys playing the sport or whatever, you know, does three times a week or whatever, but also isn't like you know, looking to make the Olympics or whatever, or looking to like make like a, Mm -hmm. you know, professional sports team. There's, there's not as many options there. Um, Right. So, which is a bummer because it's like, you know, and it's, it seems to be creeping down is, is my understanding. Like, yeah, nobody can do anything for enjoyment. It has to be monetized. Everything has to be monetized. There has to be some kind of a hierarchy associated with it. And in order to get into that hierarchy, you have to prove yourself through some act of meritocracy and like (laughs) competitive meritocracy. Right. Even like though, you can't just yeah. enjoy soccer. You can't just pick up a skill or play a sport that's enjoyable with other people. Right. You have to be doing it to the exclusion of someone else in a hierarchical structure in which you are superior to them. Like it really blows. I don't like this at all. You know, it was like when I was a, y- a younger person, I took violin lessons yeah. and piano lessons. And because the investment in these instruments is not small, and there's no telling if your kid's actually going to do anything with it if you spend all the money and shell out all the money. My parents sort of took this like reverse tactic where it's like they didn't assume any of the risk. I assumed all of the risk, which is to say that my parents were more than willing to buy these things and give me lessons, but the, it came on the condition of me. It, it requ- They required me to be competitive. Right. And so the cost of me accessing something that gave me a lot of joy and made me feel good as a person and helped me like cope with my existence was turned into something hyper competitive and heavily monetized and it ruined right. it for me. It absolutely ruined it for me. Yeah, um it's so fucked. I'm scarred to this day. I found performance incredibly traumatic and I was here's the other thing, I was good at it. Mm-hmm. And so like the more I did it, the more competitive it became by definition because my skill level increased and I was increasingly put in situations with other people who were getting better and better at it and therefore more and more competitive. And so it was like this double-edged sword. The more enjoyment and the better I got at it, the more competitive and the more cutthroat and the more expensive and the more um, hierarchical it became until I finally just stopped because I couldn't take it anymore. And now I'm going to trade that sucker in for a cello, I think. (laughs) Right. Because I always wanted to play cello, and they're like, you can't play cello. That's not a solo instrument. It totally, whatever. Uh-huh. It fucking is. Two words. Yo-Yo Ma. Uh-huh. Well, I guess that's maybe three, except the first one. They're t- two names. Two, two names. names. Uh-huh. One person's two names. Yo-Yo Ma. Uh-huh. <laughs> Fuck off. So, yeah. Uh, I don't know what I don't know what more to say about that. Please don't ruin something your child loves. Right. <laughs> Please. Oh. Uh. So I was also reading another cool design thing that has to do with like, oh, saving energy and generating energy and not doing things the way that we used to. And um, there's an organization from Norway called Worldwide Wind, WWW, that has created a floating turbine that above water uses wind and below water uses water. Uh And they have contra-rotating blades to deliver twice the output of today's largest wind turbines. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 
and they can scale up to 400 meters in height. So like it's, I mean, they just bob around in the ocean off mm-hmm. offshore yeah. and generate like ass loads of energy. Uh-huh. Um, the these ones have vertical turbines as opposed to so when you look at a windmill you kind of think of them as like a giant pinwheel yeah where the blades are rotating in a vertical fashion higher and lower at the top of the rotation the blade is up and at the bottom it's down uh, north south east west whatever um with these floating ones the they have vertical axis turbines so they're not um they're not turbines spinning in a way that a bird could fly head on into them. Right. They spin vertically like, um, how do I explain that? Like how a dinner plate spins, if you've ever seen someone spin plates. Right, right. So the the axis that it spins on is different, which means that it's way less likely for animals to fly into it and get killed, which is great. Yes. It's kind of interesting. Yep. Um, so I just like this. This for me fits into one of the themes that we like to talk about, which is like reiteration. Like, OK, we've got the pinwheel thing and we've got it on land. But what if we like put it in water? And what if we like make it twist in two directions instead of one? And what if we put the blades vertically instead of hor- or laterally oriented? And Right, like, right. Uh, like better and better uh, things coming out of just the reiteration on a theme. It's really cool. It is cool. I yeah. Um, I was actually this is kind of related when we're we're kind of talking about like environmental problems. Um, yeah. I was watching this uh, report. I can't remember. It was on YouTube or something. I can't remember who it was. Like one of the, it's probably Vox or some kind of like network s- style production company, but. Um, they were talking about the reason why beavers uh, might actually be really helpful for the environment in some contexts. Um, oh yeah, and yeah, and so I guess like in the 1940s, like the fish and game wildlife, like they re- uh, they relocated like 70 plus beavers by yes, parachute. Yes, beavers by parachute. Yes, yes, we met some people who know about this. They were artists. So there, there were these this group of people called. Um, Oh my gosh. Super Futures for Super Furs, I think is what the name of their collective is uh-huh. and their artists. And they came to Franconia Sculpture Park and they did this giant installation called Beaver Reavement, uh-huh. which was about bereavement and the beavers. And they talked about like how they relocated these beavers and they dropped them out of airplanes with parachutes and crates and all this stuff and how like only some of them lived and oh my gosh this insane story and they made this huge art project out of it that coincided with one of the artists loss of their son to um the opioid crisis so uh, it was really fucking cool that's the that's how i know about this though please continue yeah (laughs) funny so so they can like like the thing the thing about the beavers that's really cool is that um, quite literally is that as uh, environments start to get hotter, um, the way now there's a lot of caveats here, but and I'll get to those. But the way the beavers um, create dams and create these like wetlands around in and around rivers creates mm-hmm. these supernatural fire breaks. Um, the air temperature is lowered, obviously, like anytime you have like a body of water, like basically they create a lot of lakes where there weren't lakes. Ah, and they create these bodies of water that a are deeper so that a lot of the river fish have places to go when it gets too hot and they can survive mm. longer by swimming to the lower parts of the of the beaver dam area yes. right so it's cooler water and this works and then um and then because there's so much more water in the area a lot of the um 
the plant life doesn't dry out and die and become a fire hazard and all of these other things that continue to like cool the local environment. Um, mm-hmm. So all of this is really good. And I was watching this. And I was like, yeah, this is really cool. They they become this like they're kind of this ketone ketone keystone species, right? Which mm-hmm. is that idea of like a species that's like integral to a particular ecosystem where. Um, like unfortunately mosquitoes i think are, end up being kind of a keystone species in a lot of ways because they they're such a large food source yeah for yep like for the bottom of the food chain right like all the sure. fish and everything else kind of grows up around eating mosquito larvae etc um mm-hmm. but uh you know but fuck mosquitoes so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but fuck mosquitoes right but fuck mosquitoes um <laughs> those those bastards can all die a fiery death um and as much as possible in the most Speaking painful way. Of, um, yeah. Side yeah. note, put yes. a pin in this one. Whatever happened with all of the genetically modified mosquitoes they let loose in Florida? Have we heard anything about that? I have not followed up on that. That is a very Neither good question. Um, okay. Note. Note note to self. Yeah. <laughs> Look that up later. So, um, so what I was going to say about the beavers mm-hmm. is that, um, you know, one of the, you know, when you watch, like, when I watched the video, I just couldn't help but thinking, I'm like, you know, this is great. And they're talking about this woman's talking about like conservation efforts in California and how this would really help with a lot of things. It's like, yeah, that's really great. Assuming that we get on that and put that in place before we stop having any rain whatsoever, because none of these rivers, yeah. there's not going to be any water and these beavers won't be able to th- thrive at all if right. we dry up to the point where we reach a desert state. And that's, that's like, the problem with a lot of this it's like the colorado river it's like you look at like this the areas of like human habitation on the south of the border where it's like those like fucking was it yuma or yeah like yeah where we lived yeah like that's like there are these towns where it's like they used to be these like lush sort of like well-watered environments that had lots Mm -hmm. of like resource and people could thrive there and like like lots of towns in Mexico are just like we don't even get any water from the Colorado River anymore because it's all used upstream like it's <clears throat> right. damned it's human damned at places where and so that's part of the problem with like the beavers is I'm like this is a a part you know a solution or an understanding that is also still harmed by the fact that we don't allow that water to flow at all anyway Right. Like we dam it up. We create like, you know, like the Hetch Hetchy Dam and like other places where it's like we create these dams that understandably are also needed to support the human habitation that we've built up around them. But the fallout of this is it's like you need that water to flow and be like you need it. You can't, you know, the beavers aren't gonna be able to work if there's no water. None of this is going to fucking work if the system of like, you know, the clouds coming in and raining on the mountains and creating, you know. Yeah is fucked so what's interesting to me is like okay so in nature yes all this shit is there for a reason like it's all interdependent it's all evolved to be there with each other and then we come along and we like change a bunch of shit and then we go back and cherry pick shit from nature and be like what if we put this isolated thing right here yes it's like it was already like that until you fucked it up. And so in a lot of these cases, when I hear people like, what we sh- what we should do is we should gather up a bunch of beavers and then move them over here. And we'll put them over here because then we'll over here solve this problem that we've created, right? Right. It's like, the this is, again, like another additive solution to a problem you've created. Instead of 
just doing the thing that's necessary, which is stopping doing the thing that disrupted the original beavers yes. such that you had to move them to a new place and meddle in this fucking process that was ongoing before you got here. Right. Like, it's just it's just wild to me, like, when people stumble upon some function of existence that has existed independently of people and then they like cherry pick it and then like try to like misapply it in these really finite yes. situations without any of the contingencies that supported that thing being a thing in the first place and then they're like Meh. I, uh-huh. like <laughs> uh. yeah no it's it's nuts it's this is how i know we're all going to die from global warming mm-hmm. it's because global warming doesn't take us figuring anything new out to stop it it takes us stopping doing things we're already doing that create it and we're not good at stopping doing things. We're great at additive solutions. We are not good at subtractive ones. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, that's part of the, um, I mean, this is the issue of like self-governance, right? Like I think a yeah. lot about the idea of self-governance because it's like, it's becoming more more relevant. Um, like, you know, if you think about like that that kind of like, understanding about the way that people who live in cities versus people who live in rural areas and their interpretation and understanding of what self-governance looks like right because Mm -hmm. in a rural area you have traditionally like you know i i like broadly speaking one can have a lot more sort of space and personal freedom to do things that have less impact on your neighbors right because if there's three miles between you and the next human being like what you do has very little immediate impact on your neighbors. Whereas when Mm -hmm. you live in the city and you're living on top of somebody and somebody's living on top of you, what you do has a much larger impact. And the fact that you want to throw a loud rager on a Tuesday night at 8 PM until fucking midnight has a huge impact on all your neighbors as opposed to when you live in the country, right? Where it's like, you know, you do what you want in your land. And like, that's, Mm -hmm. that's often reflected in their like gross politics, gross. I mean like overall politics, not like disgusting, but like they're, (laughs) you know, super grody, super grody. Yeah. Um, in, in both ways, right? Like people who live in the city, like a lot of our politics have to do, or like our rules feel restrictive to someone who comes from that environment. It's like, what do you mean? I can't do this to my house. You can't have a fucking like, you know, 6,000 kilowatt, like, spotlight beaming into your neighbor's yard at two in the morning like it's just not okay whereas in the you know in the country you could have one of those and it's not gonna really you know affect your neighbors that much right right um at least not your human neighbors yes right and so the reason i i like i always think about that in terms of like self-governance where it's like we're getting to a place where um there's like long-term problems, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, like climate change is a long-term problem where it's like we need to have a level of like self-restraint where it's like, no, we all just don't burn as much fuel as fast as possible. And we all try to like, you know, like consider resource use and like make use of it in ways that like benefit more people or benefit like some common goal. And like even that's mm-hmm. a problem of like, self-governance it's like how do you identify and create common goals that are both agreeable and good for long-term like human survivability and and again like this is a problem with self-governance it's like 
I don't have to as an individual. I like the idea that I don't have to agree that humans are, should survive. Like from my point of view, it's like fuck us, right? Like this mm-hmm. should be the last generation, whatever. Yeah, um, that's fine with me. Yeah, you know, like it. It like I, I'm not saying that's what I believe, but my point is, it's like in an <laughs> ideal world, like we all have that freedom to think and kind of act in certain ways that allow us to express our thoughts and ideas. Right. But then also there's that balance right where it's like okay Mm -hmm. yes but generally speaking like if we have an elected government that we've created like that government needs to act in accordance with like the best interest of like our citizenship our citizens as well as as well as like the interest of the world because this is where we live and let's stop you know burning down the house which everybody gets but then like also people don't everybody gets it like so i was listening to this thing the other day or I wasn't listening. I was reading. Yeah. I, I was hearing a voice inside my head because I was looking at words on a page. Uh-huh. And that voice told me. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was written from the first person perspective of someone who had just installed more solar on their house than they technically needed. So in other words, they were they were they were looped into the grid um, yep. and they were putting power back into the grid because they were generating so much of it from their array that they weren't currently using that it would go back into the grid. In my case and Damon's case, when we put up solar, we don't want to be tied into the grid. We want to be tied into our own batteries that we bank our own power. We don't want right, you to just sell it back se- to yeah, a utility. Separate we just, from the grid entirely. Just want to be separate from the grid. We just want to be able to run the shit. I don't even want to separate from the grid, sincerely. I just want to like... Uh, I don't want to tie my generation into the grid such that it spills back over into the grid when I'm not using it. I want I want to be able to determine whether or not it goes back into the grid. Right. And most of the time I want it to stay with me. Regardless, um, this person and some of their neighbors were all talking about how they had gotten this thing and how the cost of it would amortize over X number of years because they were getting paid back from the utility for the power that they were generating that they weren't using and all this stuff and how it had... Um, now that they knew that all of their electricity was being drawn off of their solar and all of the, in theory, all of that energy is coming directly from the sun to them. Yes. They <clears throat> had become extremely lax about their power use. And comparatively speaking, they looked at before and after they were on solar and after solar, they were using more than twice as much power. Because they didn't have to care anymore about like, shut the refrigerator door, you're cooling down the whole house, we have to pay for that. Like, oh, some dead dinosaur is getting burned into carbon for you to enjoy that toast right now or whatever. And it's like, psychologically, because they knew that it was coming from solar, they were like super wasteful and Uh over consuming. Like, we never turn lights off ever anymore because we know there's no consequences. And I thought to myself, you are the problem (laughs) because... Uh you are now engaging in even more reckless behavior than before. And the recklessness of the behavior is what got us into this situation, not the taste or flavor of the energy we're using. Right, right. Like if you had not been an overconsumptive fucking American asshole, like all of us are because our entire culture is built around consuming as much as possible all of the time. Like if we weren't all doing this, we wouldn't be globally in the predicament that we're in. Right. It's mostly our fault because we consume all the shit. 
Yeah, I and so like I'm thinking about this, and I'm like, this is an incredibly idiotic and short-sighted perspective to admit to in writing publicly, because you're also admitting to putting additional wear on and tear on everything that you own, meaning it's all going to run out faster. And guess what? There is still a fucking carbon price tag attached to all that shit that you're going to need to replace in your house because you've gone through it all faster. Yeah. So you're just being an even worse person than you were before when you were using fossil fuels because you think now you're absolved of all of the guilt of overconsumption and you've just doubled down on all of your bad behavior and you're admitting it. Again, why I know we're all doomed. Yes. I, because the solution is poisoned. It's a poison solution. It's, yeah, that is unfortunate. I think, um, it, I, you know, in some ways... Speaking of self-governance, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, like it's 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 dumb how that little breakdown, right? Where it's like they, if they were actually living off grid, and they were dependent on that solar energy to yeah. provide the energy for their house, they would become very immediately aware of the, the limits usage. of it, right? I mean, I think mm-hmm. that's where, like, when you're on the grid, it's like the same problem of like we don't realize like what a fucking fire hose it is. Yeah, it's all just theoretical to us because we don't actually have a way of experiencing it firsthand in the in the in the scale of what we're talking about. Right. Like, you know, in California, like people don't water their lawns anymore the way they used to. Um, Yeah. I remember like, you know, Saturday afternoon was like grandpa stood in the yard with the hose on the whole time, just like on full blast, just like, you know, drinking his coffee and like, you know, spraying the lawn, like making sure it was all soaked down properly to get good green lawn. And like, and, you know, where I live now and how they they finally took out the fruit trees that my landlord, but um, they have these fruit trees. Yeah. So all the fruit trees. All all of them gone? The citrus is here. The citrus is still here, but the um, they took out these stone fruits, the two of them. Is the pomegranate gone? No, the pomegranate is still here. But he, yes. But my neighbor used to just turn the hose on and leave it on for days. I um, remember that to soak the trees, which is like, yeah, like you're growing this tree, but also like this is not the way to do this. Like you're you're you know you're just running the hose all the time and no, um, you'd soak it on a trickle for like 20 minutes to an hour depending on the type yeah, of tree no, and the you'd depth leave it to which you need to water days oh, and um God. sometimes i'd go turn it off and i'd find he'd like turn it on back on later and um because <laughs> i can hear it because see my so the way my apartment is like i live in an apartment beh- over a garage that is behind a, a like a main front house the person mm-hmm. who rents the front house would come in the backyard and like use the hose but the hose is like connected to the building that i live in and right. so when it's running i hear it through the whole you house hear right the pipes yeah. yeah and um you know and like the water pressure drops in my entire house so it's like showers suck for a couple days which is oh, the God. other fucked up thing it's like <laughs> it's like it's not that you're, you can't take a shower because it's like one thing it's like always oh, using the hose this afternoon sure the water pressure is low it's like nope now the cycle started my low water pressure period begins where it's like <laughs> You know, for the next three days, I'm not going to or like fucking a week because what he'll do is move it from tree to tree. And so like three days each tree. And now it's like and he's like, no, it's on a trickle. And I'm like, it's it's not clearly because the water <laughs> pressure's dropped a lot. And anyway, um, yeah, my point is, is that this that you're lucky you guys didn't end up with a sinkhole in the backyard, <laughs> right? Um, 
<laughs> just like saturated the ground to the point of quicksand over <laughs> right. the course of yes. three, like however many hours that is, 20, yeah. 40, 60, like 72 hours. Yes, of just right. Constant water running in the same place in your yard. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, my point of this is like yeah. when you have access to electricity in a house where you can pretty much just plug shit into, you know, just get an expander and get, you know, get an expander, get a, get a power strip and like plug it in yeah. and now just plug all your shit in there and suck, you know, right. 20 amps down and blow the fuse occasionally. And it's like, <laughs> and the thing about it is like, that's power in this country is like that where it's like everybody, it's fantastic that we have access to it. And it's gives us like these lovely, wonderful, like modern conveniences of having right. light at night and having, you know, being able to run AC and stuff. But also it's just power generation is complicated. It's a little different than than water where it's like kind of a one-to-one. It's like part of the problem with like our power generation is it's like, you know, the, it's on demand sort of like the power companies like have to maintain the grid energized, right? And like one person... Mm-hmm running their toaster excessively isn't the problem it's like five thousand people running their toasters and their ac units and whatever and right you know and and anyway um there's a neighborhood in saint paul where most of the houses don't like they haven't had not been upgraded to central air for example and so in this in this particular neighborhood because of the timing that the neighborhood was built and the style of the houses etc etc everybody had multiple window units for air conditioners Uh and it like it would cause brownouts in that part of town because on a hot day everybody would turn like their six air conditioners on for each house instead of like the one big one Uh that's really efficient Uh and everybody power down like nobody gets anything now. <laughs> I am not an advocate for air conditioning either. Like I'm not yeah. suggesting that like clearly the solution is everybody should just get a honking air conditioner central air unit for their house. Like I we don't have air conditioning. I got the fans instead because I was like, no. Uh-huh. <laughs> I were I don't want to buy into the downward spiral of air conditioning that is necessary because we keep making the planet hotter and because the planet's hotter we need more air conditioning but the air conditioning itself is like contributing heavily to the air planet getting hotter the bummer bummer about ac is like you know window units aren't great but they're so much better than those ones that sit on the floor and have a tube running out the window i don't think i've ever seen one of those before what's oh they're super common they're like portable air conditioners which allows you to like put it wherever you want in the room kind of but not Mm. really it still has to go out a window because that's how fucking ac works is you have to exchange the hot air somewhere um but like (laughs) but the thing about it is like they somehow became popular because like people started banning um window units because window units are unsightly not because they're so like window units are way more efficient um like an ac unit compared to a lot Mm -hmm. of things because they have the hot side outside and the cold side inside sure and so you're being pretty efficient about it and they're getting better like they're definitely better and so if you are buying an ac unit really try to get a window unit for another reason not for saving the planet but just because if you get like an on the floor room unit that like sticks out the window it's going to be more expensive you're going to be really disappointed with how how poorly it actually poorly works. It works like i've had several of them in my life and they're never as good like the window units it's like <clears throat> you put them in when if you get it installed right and the window sealed and you have decent insulation around it mm-hmm. they're they're pretty effective like you know yeah definitely they are i mean 
But I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying uh, to advocate that everybody go get AC units. I'm just saying, if you have never considered it, and suddenly you're trying to buy an AC unit, just don't fall for the fucking floor unit trick. The, the you in, still in have to stick it in a window unit. anyway. Right. So right. just fucking put it in a window. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So yeah. Anyway. I've seen a lot of places too where people just put like a hole in the wall and like shove it yep. up near like the ceiling and it's just like there like a hole to the outside world in the side of your house. Yep. Yeah, we had um we had central air growing up and it was like this big thing when my parents committed to it and they bought a unit and I think there was like a summer where I was really hot I think when I was three and somehow that was the catalyst for my parents getting air conditioning but I don't I don't remember really life without ac growing up and i i didn't i never really liked it i don't like how cold it makes everything and i don't there's something weird about breathing all that recycled air that's just been like sealed up in the house i don't know i don't like it Mm. Mm. but i'm also lucky in that like hot hot weather doesn't bother me for some people it's like not an option they're like i'm gonna die if i don't get some fucking air conditioning and in that case you should have air conditioning i guess (laughs) i don't know hard to say right right we are um we are taking steps to put a new roof on the house that can support a solar array so that's exciting because we can't do the whole like solar yeah, panel as cool. roof stuff here oh like, yeah or like sh- you know the solar shingles or whatever right, right not not in a position to do that but um solar panels someday well solar shingles I, my understanding is they're not actually very efficient either so it's kind of a uh, yeah. complicated problem um <clears throat> yeah that's what i've also heard um what else can we talk about? What other design things? I, you know, it's interesting. I have to, here's a design thing. I yes. have to replace the front rotor brakes on my car. Oh, the rotors um, or the brakes? Uh, well, the, the both. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Actually, the disc rotor and also the brake pads. Yep. And um, in the back on my smart car, I have drum brakes, which I am staying the fuck away from. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and I would love to talk about the difference between the design of drum Let's brakes about and disc brakes because so, they're very different. Yeah. Um, that front disc back drum is very common. My truck is like that. Uh, mm. mm-hmm. most I think of my your, Saturn was like that as well. Yeah. So like most of your braking power typically comes from the front wheels on a car anyway, right? Because as you, as you apply braking force to the wheels, as you stop the wheels, the car pitches forward and puts more weight on the front wheels. So more traction mm. is applied to the front wheels, which means that they have more forces that they have to deal with. So that's often why many cars have d- drum brakes in the back where um, it's harder. Drum brakes are can be harder to apply as much force mm-hmm. for the size. Um, they're simpler. They're real easy to change. Um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't worry about it. You probably don't need to change them because oftentimes they don't wear out nearly as fast because they're not using it. They're not taking as much of the braking force. Yes. Um, so they probably don't need to be changed. Um, I'm not sure why you have to change the front ones. Did they tell you that the rotors were deplete, like too thin? The <clears throat> the brake pads are down to 3%. Yes. And the rotors are like old and have like stuff like, you know, when the rock will get stuck between the brake pad and the rotor and stuff like that. The rotors are they're, they're like whatever, 90,000 miles old almost. Oh, yeah. So you probably I mean, it would be fine to replace them. But um, I've done the I've done the brake pads myself before and yeah. I did not replace the rotors at the time. And that was about the halfway point of its current life. It was probably around like 45,000 miles that we right. did that. <clears throat> um, and so it, it's pretty simple. Yep. On the smart car. The drum brakes are not simple, but like I said, I'm not touching them because mm-hmm. um, I don't think I have to. 
Well, um, I mean, from a design perspective, like <clears throat> um, the the nice thing about the disc brakes is that they um, there's more surface area typically to apply it. Like typically, the way that it works is if you imagine there's like a plate spinning between your fingers, and then you want yes. to stop the plate, you pinch it with your fingers. Right. And so with a drum brake, it's more like you push on one side. Yeah, and isn't it also like? I mean, the you push out. It's my, more like there's a yeah, bowl spinning, out. and then you have to like push your hand, your fingers out inside the bowl to yeah, stop the bowl. Yeah, or from like the, the way I kind of pictured it is if you were standing inside of a toilet paper roll yes. and you were trying to like push stop it from spinning against yes. the inside of it by pushing on it with exactly. your hands and feet or something like. Yeah, and that's the way drum brakes work. Um, and so disc brakes can have more surface area, um, mm-hmm. and they can also uh, typically apply um a fair amount of force to that area because you can clamp down you're more clamping down on it usually the way out. they're designed they're just kind of like an efficient use of space um yeah you can have like a large disc so breaking typically is a matter of uh heat basically the the whole point mm-hmm. like the way breaking works is that you need to be able to dissipate that heat and so um you create friction with the pads on the disc and if the disc is efficient at um, absorbing the heat and then venting that heat to the atmosphere, um, mm-hmm. to the air, then you have you can have very efficient braking. So, like if your brakes overheat, that's really dangerous because if they get too hot, you can't stop anymore. You can't generate friction anymore. Uh-huh. And so it's a matter of physics. It's this like heat formula, right? It's like the energy transfer of taking that mechanical energy and converting it to friction and heat, mm-hmm. and then dissipating the heat off. So disc brakes are traditionally a little more efficient at that, but Drum yeah. brakes are good too. It's it's just a kind of it, they both work on the same principles. So there's really very and little difference. Um, yeah, you may not have seen like disc brakes on a car because they're usually obscured by like the hubcap or the wheel, sure. so you don't see it working. Uh, on some really fancy cars, they are show them off, like yeah. show offy and ornamental. You yeah, know, they're like they're blinged out. Um, <laughs> they're beda- bedazzled. Right. Um, <laughs> but like uh, if you ha- ride a bike that has the squeezy brakes on the handlebar. Yes. And you can look at the front wheel, although don't look at the front wheel while you're riding because you'll go <laughs> ass over to get all. When you squeeze the brakes on the handlebars, they squeeze the little eraser rubby pads yes. on either side the of erasers. the wheel in front yes. of you. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's like little that erasers. rub on the rim. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And on your car, they're made out of what? Like they're made out of like. Usually like a ceramic material or ceramic. sometimes they're kind of like an organic compound. I think they um, used to have asbestos in them. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yep. <sighs> Uh, so yeah, I I got to do that. I I also need to get they new need to the car. the point is to to transfer all the heat into the disc and not into right. the pads because the idea is that the pads create the friction, but all of that heat is transferred heat into the transfer. disc because the disc is the large heavy piece block of iron essentially or block of metal that mm-hmm. can has a like a much larger heat capacity and so oftentimes the pads are like some kind of ceramic or heat resistant material that will create a high amount of friction. Um, sure. While while not transferring that heat to the calipers, but may, you know, bulk of the heat needs to go into the disc. So. Yeah, and the calipers are the squeezy thing. Yeah, the caliper are the squeezy yeah. things. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's three percent. I'm like, how? Hmm. Maybe I should not. I mean, how did they? Who Who know. told you that? I don't know. Yeah, three percent. I like. Do you hear the? Do they make a squeak when you're driving on them? They have not started uh, audibly. Then you're not. A, then you're not at three percent. Yeah. 
you're nowhere near three percent. When you hit <laughs> when you hit the squeak, you got plenty of brake life. It's just you're making it's a warning to let you know. It's saying, hey, hey like you've gotten down to the <laughs> if problem. you're the type that procrastinates things, we're letting you know a year in advance you're gonna need new brakes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So. Well, it's kind of funny. Like I, I was wondering when I was going to have to get new brakes because this little smart car has been like a mountain goat down the Sierra range uh-huh. and like the Rockies a bunch of times. So yeah. I don't know. I It's amazing to me that they've lasted this long, but it's time. I think they're starting to get a little noisy. Like they're kind of going like when you uh-huh. <laughs> when you apply the brakes they haven't started squealing yet oh but it's yeah you're nothing there. alarming but you can he- the brakes are audible now and i'm like mm. uh-huh starting to grind a little bit um i am heavily considering getting an electric smart car because they don't make them anymore you can't buy them in brand new in america anymore and i don't really ever want to be without a smart car ever again uh, I I relate to this issue so much. I like <laughs> ye of the two or three Porsches hanging ye, around at any given yeah, time. Yeah, two two Porsches and a and an old an old Tacoma truck. Yeah, um, and a boat and a boat. Don't forget the boat. <laughs> indeed. Um, yeah, it's very like, but like many things in my life where it's like you find something that you like and it works really well, and mm-hmm. because of speaking of where capitalism ruins things it's yes. like the drive of capitalism which is to drive consumerism which is to say like nope new things now can't yes. make the same like i had these sunglasses these like fucking cheap five dollar sunglasses that i loved that i bought on amazon yes. in a pack of three you can't get them anymore no um I also love these. They're polarized. They're super lightweight so they don't fall off your face when you look down at things. Yeah. And the thing about it is like, it's like you can kind of find similar ones. Sure. Mm -hmm. That's fine. But it's not like, it's like, what the fuck? (laughs) I know. I know. You can't, it's, there's this donut hole where... Like, okay, case in point, the design of pressure canners. Uh If you've never had the living nightmare of trying to shop for a pressure canner to can food. Yeah. um, Let me edify you. There are largely two types of pressure canners. One comes with a dial that shows you the pressure and lets you know at all points in time with a needle on the dial where the pressure is so that you know whether or not you're achieving the correct pressure and heat inside of the canning yeah. uh, canning pot um, because you don't want your shit to get botulism right? <laughs> and kill you. Like yep. canned foods can actually kill you. Like not, not, not like, Oh, this might happen. Like if you don't do this correctly, you'll get botulism and you'll die. So um, we were looking, there's two different kinds. There's the kind with the dial. And then there's also kind that doesn't have a dial and it just has these weighted yeah. um, things that plug up the steam hole. And that's what causes the pressure. And once the pressure builds up to the correct point, it it creates enough upward pressure on the underside of that little plug that it pops the plug off and any excess pressure is just vented. And then the plug resettles and then it achieves right. the correct and pressure. They're and the so, classic ones that have the little weighted thing that goes... It's like constantly yeah, rattling. It as rattles a steam to let escapes. you know. Yeah. Right. There's also a key difference, another key difference between these types of canners, which is that some of them have a rubber gasket on the inside or a silicone gasket to create the seal. Yes. And some of them are just metal on metal. Uh-huh. Usually the pressure canners that have the weighted um the the weighted plug and no dial have 
uh, the really expensive, nice ones yes. have metal on metal. So you never have to worry about that seal, like absorbing odors or getting dried out and no longer functioning the way it should and no longer creating an actual seal so that you don't achieve the pressure. It just seems like there's a lot of like probable, you know, failure uh -huh. with these extra pieces. Well, we also found out that the ones with the dials, although very convenient because they allegedly tell you the exact pressure inside of that canner at any given time, those dials need to be tested and verified and calibrated once a year by like a, uni a university extension service or a county extension service or something like that. Yeah. And I'm like, so the whole idea of this is to try to like achieve some kind of um, like food independence or like take some stress off of the food web and like, you know, grow your own food and like do this at home. And like you're supposed to, if you're canning, the idea is that you're going to have it shelf stable and be there available for a long period of time. So my question is like, doesn't the need to like maintain this shit on a yearly basis and have it checked out by a third party who like has to be functional? Like it just seems contradictory to me. So, um, uh, <laughs> like my, I want to haul this thing in once a year to check the gasket and the, and the yeah, dial. So, I just want to know that it's metal on metal and it's working. And I know it works because physics is still a thing. Thank God. Right. So, um, as someone who's done pressure canning quite a bit, uh -huh. um, and I have a large canner, and it's just the size of it dictated that it came with a dial. Yes. Um, but the ones that come with a dial still regulate the pressure the same way. Sure, but so if well, you... but nothing. Yeah. Like, or sorry, shut the fuck up and listen <laughs> to what I have to say about this. <laughs> just can it. You just can just, it. Just you just can, can it. Can it, man. <laughs> I was just going to say that the dial is convenient, but it doesn't matter if it's accurate or not because the pressure is still regulated by the weight. Correct. And so yes. as long as your pressure, as long as your pressure canning at the given altitude and temperature that you're at, yes. it's going to be in the range that's safe for general canning, right? Yes. Yes. Go Here's ahead. the only problem that I ran into. You are, I agree 100% with everything you've just said. Yeah. However, I also noticed that some types of canning require different types of pressures. And I noticed that the dial canners, generally speaking, only came with one plug, whereas the canners with no dial came with multiple plugs that indicate that, like, activate at different pressures. Uh, I see. So And so there's a catch-22 here. Or not a catch-22. That's the wrong phrase. But there's a problem here where like there's these mutually exclusive options where if I could get a canner with all three of the plugs that go with the different um, pressure gradients at different altitudes and that also happen to come with a dial, I would be fine with the dial. It wouldn't matter to me. Right. But since I can only get the dial with only one uh, weight of... Yes. of weight plug that means i in some cases i'm going to have to rely on that pressure canner dial and there's like these little pop-up buttons and stuff all these things and so i'm like man why isn't there something that has everything well um i generally so what like higher like generally in canning i mean the only reason you would do low like the only reason you'd like ride the lowest pressure 
viable is because yeah. of like how, what it does to the contents, right? Like, right. you know, higher pressures usually means like higher temperatures, right? So, yeah. Um, and some of them you don't want it super, super crazy high or as high as it can go because it'll just destroy the food that you're trying to preserve and it'll become kind of inedible. I mean, right. it'll be safe to eat, but it will but not be. I would argue that. Yes. Um, I, I don't, I, I can't imagine you actually doing that. Like I, what I imagine is like, <laughs> just get the one that fits the amount of cans that you want to do in a batch yeah. and yeah. get the one that is the general safety pressure that you need. And whether yeah. it comes with a dial or not is irrelevant because anytime you're canning over like a certain pressure, like you can also run it for a longer time. Mm. If you need to make sure that it's it's considered, I mean, we're talking about so there's workarounds. Right? There's workarounds, and and also like, you know, just can it and then eat it, and if it tastes bad, don't eat it. Like, yeah. Um, but also, you know, understood. Like, I I guess you know, I use mine as an autoclave, like when we're doing like biology experiments or whatever, mm -hmm. like when we've been kind of doing stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, again, mine just runs, I don't remember what pressure it runs at, but it runs at whatever pressure it is, which is higher than standard or not higher than standard. It's higher yeah. than atmospheric pressure, right? So, yes. So, which allows the temperature to get hot enough to kill most of the bacteria that I'm concerned about. Sure. Um, both for canning food and for sterilizing like equipment for like, you know, yeah. if we're doing, you know, bacterial cultures or whatever. Um, sure. So the one that I found that I decided I wanted. Yes. And <clears throat> this is uh, like because in the in this particular situation, money is no object. Uh, right. Re like there's probably well, it could be. You could, could be, be trying to buy an autoclave. Well, this is the thing. Uh -huh. I found a happy medium because I have also considered the autoclave angle of this. Okay. And the metal on metal 21 quart pressure canner with the three knobs and no gauge works as an autoclave with one of the one of the stoppers one of the weighted stoppers and you can get it and i really liked that it was metal on metal and i liked that i could get all three of the stoppers so i could know what pressure was inside yeah without the dial and i can get that one for 400 bucks and i am gonna save my pennies and i'm gonna i'm going for it you're going for it that's the cadillac yep well there because you go. it just solves it seems to solve a lot of the like you know like what's the rate of failure in the field with this particular like gasket that yeah. is going to get worn out if i don't use it enough like this is the other thing i don't know that i'm going to be particularly consistent about this so i want something that if left unattended for maybe two years in a row if like i get sick and i can't plant a bunch of stuff on schedule again right. or something like that i have like chronic illness issues so i i'm not necessarily my body's not totally reliable in which case if I can't do all of this physical work in my yard and get all of this food together, I'm not going to be using that canner as much as I would need to to keep the gasket like, right. you know, rubberized and, and moisturized and things like that. So if I let it sit for two years without getting the gauge checked or without checking the gasket and stuff, if that's going to be a problem, I just want to eliminate those possibilities from like right. the scenario. Right. I think I can do that, but it means I'm not getting a canner this year. It means I'm going to have to wait till I can pay for it. And that's fine. But like yeah. arriving at this decision, it was agonizing because well, everything we looked at, we're like, well, why does this one have this thing and not this other thing? Like, right, right. Around and around in circles. Finally found it on eBay. 
Well, I don't want to like derail that too much, but I do want to say I've had my large canner, which is has the rubber gasket and mm-hmm. the gauge and the you know the weight. Um, yeah, and I've had it for fifteen years, and I've never had to That's replace any of that stuff. So, have you ever had the gauge calibrated? No, because like I said, it doesn't really doesn't matter, matter because I don't have a way to, ad- you, you can't actually adjust it. You can just see, and it's nice, yeah. I can see the pressure goes up, but it doesn't really matter because it just needs to be a higher pressure than what, you know, what it is. Like, yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah, anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, that's like trains, monetizing kids shit, wind turbines, beavers, mosquitoes, yeah. additive versus subtractive solutions, self-governance, bad solar users, brake drums and discs, and pressure canning. We covered a lot of ground today. We did. We really did. Good job. <laughs> Great job, team. Go, team. We're doing such good work, you guys. Such good work, you guys. Do we, we haven't done like a color of the day or like a... Like a, like an additional little snack, kind of a design snack. <sighs> design snacks. Little... Yeah, let's do mm. one. Um, actually, this will be good because then I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do have to go to a stupid work meeting. Who who wants to work anymore? Don't do it. Beavers. Beavers. Beavers want to work. Yeah, but I feel like they're not. They're not working. They're doing what they love. <laughs> <laughs> it's not work if you love it. um so Uh, so here's a design snack um okay it's a little it's a little bit directly from wikipedia but um in fact it's very much it's retrieved from the wikipedia entry on design as of september 29th 2022 um on the idea of history of design Uh, and so i'll just kind of paraphrase it a little bit but um history of design uh as you can imagine is complicated in and of itself because it's left to you know there's there's how do you interpret what constitute designing at what point you know one right. could argue that you know that's a natural outcome of you know thought right like mm-hmm. you're you know as you extend and create in the world whether you're building a you know stone axe or you're trying to create a shelter for yourself um you know so uh, but um, according to Wikipedia, um, many design historians, such as John Haskett, start mm-hmm. with the Industrial Revolution and the development of mass production. Um, Interesting. And so I can see where that is a a place to put a pin and say, okay, like here is this inflection point where mm-hmm. after this point, design becomes a more deliberate process of consideration for our modern world of like mass market and mass consumerism and, you know, creating products that are unified and the same and reducing cost and doing Mm -hmm. all these things that go into like modern ideas of design when we're talking about like product design and and creation of of objects and artifacts that exist in our, you know, in our modern lives. Sure. Yeah. I think too, there's probably like, like you said, an inflection point where it's like, um, I think when we first started this podcast, we talked about like what even is design and how you and I are both designers or if, if you're a person who's ever made a thing or anytime you make a decision to have something be this way, not that way, you're yeah. designing for something, right? Exactly. So design yeah. is like a process that, I mean, I think philosophically, it's arguable that we're never not designing. Right. 
Right. Um, but like in the <laughs> in the big like abstracts, what's design? Well, you're doing it all the time. Right. Yeah, that's not helpful. Right. Um, <laughs> like I think um, I think the inflection point would maybe be for me like when how the maybe codifying or like making a protocol for what design is like a, a deliberate series of un- undertakings to get to a particular outcome. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's like design principles that you have to follow if you want to do it well. And, you know, th- there's architectural principles and, and things that have to do with like engineering where you have to do things a certain way or you'll end up with catastrophic <laughs> results. Right. Um, and so I think about that, like if it's if it came around, if design, if the design inflection point was around the time of like the industrial revolution, then that seems to me to be kind of what that's all about is like, here's a standardization and a way that this can be replicated with a high degree of like precision and accuracy and you'll get the same results every time. And it's like, um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah, no, it is very interesting. So if you made it all this way and you got to the very end and listened to a design snack, um, and you have opinions about that design snack, I would like to remind you again that we do like to hear from you. Um, and you can email uh, Meg or myself, Ned, but you can also email Dana, the founder and CEO of this endeavor at dana at fcbm.io. And if you email, email her, she will forward relevant queries to us and we can talk about it on the podcast if you're consenting to that. Or right. you know, we can also just listen to your read your read your rant mm-hmm. you know positive or negative yeah yeah we we like a rant yeah yeah <laughs> well actually <laughs> well apparently <laughs> never so, been on the tv before <laughs> <laughs> there's a this is a meme of the apparently kid there's this yes. adorable child who gets on the evening news at a like at coney island or something yes it's grandpa. so great yeah well apparently i've never been on the news before yeah and he just has like this he's got the microphone he's got it and he's talking into it yes, and yes. just keeps going um and i there's also another child i can't remember if i brought this up on one of the other podcasts we've recorded recently but the corn kid if you haven't yes, seen the corn, the corn kid, kid google the corn kid the corn kid's great it's this kid and they just talk to him on the news and he talks about how much he loves corn and he's yes. eating corn and it's really yes, cute it's so cute yeah <laughs> I love that these little kids became memes, you know, like Corn Kid and the yeah. Well Apparently Kid and yep. the yeah, Chloe Side Eye Kid. Uh huh. Yeah. So funny. Well, anyway, the All right. we've we've reached our time today. You have, have to go be I have an adult. To go be an adult. Dumb. <laughs> Don't do it. If you have a choice, just run not away. Not worth it. Right. Not worth it. Abort. Not worth it. The worst they're gonna say is like you're not living up to your potential or whatever. But the truth is, they wouldn't let you achieve it anyway. They'd get to block, block you before you got there. So oh, just yeah. enjoy no. your life and like yep. you know, mm-hmm. slack it. Right, it's slack fine. it. <laughs> Gen X approved. Indeed. All right. Go <laughs> Have team. a good day. Okay. Bye. Bye.